Welcome to this uh, lecture as part of the Utopia's Literary Festival here at the LSE. My name is Mike Savage. I'm the head of the Department of Sociology here at the LSE. I'm also co-director of a new institute called the International Inequalities Institute, which began work just less than a year ago, which is trying to develop a whole series of um, interventions, research and teaching-wise around questions of inequality, straddling disciplines. Um, and it may seem a bit strange that we have something on utopias, but not really, because if we are concerned about inequality, we might need to think about how to address inequality and what we hope will, might replace it at some point in the future. So it actually uh, does fit our concerns very, uh, very strongly. It's a great pleasure to welcome Ruth Levitas today. Ruth is the leading sociologist in the world, I would say, with an interest in utopia. She's done a great deal over a number of years to bring the issue of utopia strongly back into social, scientific and sociological thinking. She also has a strong interest in inequality issues and has done lots of work on questions of social exclusion and poverty. So she's perfectly fitted to, to be part of the International Inequalities um, lecture series. So I understand she'll be talking about 35-40 minutes and there'll be time at the end for some questions after her talk. So Ruth, over to you. Thanks very much, Mike, and thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I noticed that uh, the title that I gave you, Utopia in the 21st Century, is slightly different from uh, the title that I've been thinking about, which is The Necessity of Utopia. But since this is actually about the necessity of utopia in the 21st century, it is the same thing. Now, the occasion of the LSE's kind of utopia-themed literary festival, together with a year-long exploration at Somerset House and at Bristol, Antwerp, Lisbon and elsewhere, is the 500th anniversary of a short book by Thomas More, published in Latin in 1516, which gave us the word utopia. These slides are distorting slightly, but... The left-hand illustration is an early frontispiece to Utopia. The second is the cover of a translation of Utopia into the Utopian alphabet invented by Moore, produced by Somerset House in conjunction with Jeremy Deller for this quincentenary year. And the smiley is the symbol he adapted or adopted for the year, which currently flies on a flag above Somerset House itself, looking also like a character from the Utopian alphabet. And you have to think all these are actually based on circles and squares, not ellipses. Suddenly, this book, which has been of marginal interest outside academia, has a new lease of life. And most of these events this year are not concerned primarily with Moore's text, but use it as an occasion to ask what is the place of utopia or utopian thinking in the contemporary world? And again, this question has uh, hitherto been rather a minority interest pursued in the face of general public disdain or hostility. I've been working on questions of utopianism for 45 years and it has never had the public profile it's acquired this year. So that's good. I'm going to talk mainly about the importance of the, the importance. Oh, sorry, I've lost my place now. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to talk mainly about the importance of utopian thinking, and especially about utopia as a method. But it does behove us, I think, to go back to Moore himself. Thomas More did not invent the practice of imagining the world otherwise. You will find it in medieval poems such as The Land of Cocaine, a mythical place devoid of bad weather, lice, illness and work, where ready-cooked larks fly into your mouth. You will find it in the biblical Eden, in classical thought such as Plato's Republic, to which Moore refers, in Native American mythology, in the Irish Imrama, accounts of mythical or real voyages. And the format of Moore's book draws on the traveller's tale, whose plausibility lies in the contemporaneous exploration of the globe. John Cabot and Christopher Columbus's discoveries of the New World had taken place only 20 years before, 
in the 1490s when Moore himself was a teenager. And Utopia was written in Latin, not primarily to restrict the circulation of revolutionary ideas, but because Latin was the language in which Renaissance humanists across Europe communicated with each other, as indeed did members of Moore's household. His educational practices involved writing to his children in Latin on a daily basis and expecting them to reply in kind. But of course, to call Moore a humanist is not to suggest, as the word does now, that he was in any way a secularist or non-believer. As we know from Robert Bolt's hagiographical A Man for All Seasons and from Hilary Mantel's more recent and more critical portrayal, this was far from being the case. Rather, the humanism of the Renaissance involved a rediscovery of the intellectual legacy of the classical world, including Plato, and also, I think, a cosmology which understood society itself as a human creation rather than a divine order. And there is much in more that is still of substantive relevance. Most notable is the abolition of private property in his imagined society, which later writers, such as William Morris and more recently Frederick Jameson, have hailed as its key invention. My generation grew up on a particular version of this, which was coupled with secular humanism and strong anti-war sentiments in John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. On the other hand, the society which Moore describes involves slavery, colonialism and patriarchy, as well as a quite puritanical attitude to pleasure, regimentation of the day and restrictions of travel that now appear quite illiberal. Its model, though co-educational, is quite monastic. But I've always found book one, which was written as a preface to the main outline of utopian society in book two, more interesting. Much of it is about the merits or otherwise of accepting appointment as advisor to a king. But it also includes excoriating critique of Moore's own time. There is a ferocious section about sheep in which Moore rails against the extent of enclosures protesting about the increasing numbers of sheep reared for their valuable wool which drive people off the land. And he protests also about the linked problem of driving people to poverty, starvation and crime and then hanging them for theft. Forsooth, your sheep that were wont to be so meek and tame and so small eaters now become so great devourers and so wild that they eat up and swallow down the very men themselves. They consume, destroy, and devour whole fields, houses, and cities. For look in what parts of the realm doth grow the finest and therefore the dearest wool. Their noblemen and gentlemen, yea, and certain abbots, not contenting themselves with the yearly revenues and profits that were wont to grow to their forefathers and predecessors of their lands, leave no room for tillage. They enclose all into pastures. They throw down houses. They pluck down towns and leave nothing standing but only the church to be made a sheep house. The husbandmen be thrown out of their own. They must needs depart away. Men, women, husbands, wives, fatherless children, widows, their whole household, small in substance and much in number. And when they have wandered abroad, what else can they do but steal and then justly party be hanged or else go about begging? To put it differently... The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common, but leaves the greater villain loose who steals the the common from the goose. Now, one might draw two parallels here. The first is that George Monbiot and other ecologists are currently arguing that there are far too many sheep in Britain. In this case, not so much displacing arable farming, but rather excluding wilderness. So there's a rewilding movement which would see the reintroduction of wolves, among other species. That's a utopia of its own. The second, and perhaps more pertinent, is the extent of enclosure of public spaces, in London especially, where even what appears to be public space is in fact merely permissive space that is actually privately owned, as we saw in the case of the Occupy movement. Linked to that, 
The social cleansing that is resulting from rising rents, the expulsion of council tenants and all but the very rich from central London is also a form of enclosure. Where we have foreign investment in towers of flats which are empty and merely a place to park capital, we have the enclosure of London housing by the global elite simply for profit, which is Moore's point about speech. Sheep. (laughs) We might go further. The eminent political economist, Ellen Mikesons Wood, whose obituary appeared in yesterday's Guardian, argued that the enclosures and the driving of people off the land that Moore refers to here was the essential beginning of capitalism because it forces people to sell their labour on the market. However, I would argue that while Moore gave us the term utopia, the 500th anniversary of his book is really merely a handy peg on which to hang thinking about alternative forms of organisation. Briefly and very heretically, the book Utopia doesn't actually matter all that much, but Utopia does. And I have three main points. Firstly, that environmental limits and social justice demand radical social change. Utopian imagination is needed in order to develop genuine alternatives to the status quo. And thirdly, we have to understand utopia as a method rather than a goal. We cannot go on as we are. Less than a year ago, new research was published about the thinning of the Larsen Sea ice sheet. This is the largest ice sheet on the Antarctic Peninsula um, and is two and a half times the size of Wales. And between 1998 and 2012, it lost four metres in thickness. (coughs) The new data shows that it's losing volume from below as a result of rising sea temperatures. But the main problem isn't just the amount of water released from the ice shelf itself, because the ice shelf acts as a dam on the glaciers behind it. If the shelf breaks, the glaciers will pour even more ice into the warming seas. And the collapse of ice shelves in Antarctica could potentially lead to rises of several metres in sea levels across the globe. Besides melting ice caps and rising sea levels, climate change means unstable weather patterns and pressure on usable land resources, and it is likely to lead to forced migrations that far outstrip those currently exercising European governments. Environmental limits also mean competition for scarce resources and raw materials, including water, and that in turn means more social conflict, human misery and displacement. Now, the environmental conflict is ongoing and it's intimately bound up with capitalism as an economic system. Capitalism, as David Harvey has argued requires 3% compound growth. 3% compound growth is incompatible with ecological limits. And Thomas Piketty has shown, and actually we can all see, that it also has a built-in trend to greater economic inequality, and that is incompatible with social justice. The dominant discourse has for some time announced that there is no alternative, Tina for short, But an alternative is necessary, and this is where utopia comes in. There are, however, at least four ways of thinking about what the term utopia or utopian means. Firstly, there's a kind of anti-utopian inflection to this. What Moore gave us, above all, is the term utopia, but we need to pause a little on what that word has come to mean in contemporary discourse. Because the term utopia is a pun on no place or good place. In fact, Moore's utopia is declared to be some place, some place on Earth, not displaced to prehistory, heaven, the future, or outer space. 
Nevertheless, that ambiguity of good place and no place is carried into the popular meaning of utopia and utopian, in which the good place is of necessity, non-existent and impossible. In that respect, one might argue that Moore has a lot to answer for. Utopia becomes, at best, idle, impossible dreaming, a dangerous distraction from confronting the real world. In Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Harry is found gazing into the mirror of Erised, around which runs the inscription, Erised stra eru oit ubi kafru oit onwosi, I show not your face but your heart's desire. And Dumbledore reproves Harry and removes and hides the mirror, warning that it shows us nothing but the deepest desires of our hearts. However, says Dumbledore, this mirror will give us neither knowledge nor truth. Men have wasted away before it, entranced by what they have seen, or not knowing if what it shows is real or even possible. Others argue that utopia is not only impossible, but dangerous, involving the totalitarian imposition of an ex-cathedra plan. You will find this argument in the work of contemporary commentators such as John Gray. And there was a piece in The Guardian a few weeks ago by Tobias Jones which made the very same sloppy argument. And my argument is that these objections misunderstand utopia and in particular misunderstand utopia as a goal. And the idea that utopia is fantastic, unrealistic and dangerous has a clear political effect of countering the possibility of radical change, of insisting that there is no alternative. But what is genuinely fantastic, unrealistic and dangerous is to claim or to tacitly assume that we can go on as we are, given environmental limits and the tendency of capitalism to ever-increasing inequality and inequity. Besides, what is realistic or possible is open to debate at any particular point in time and also changes over time. Possibility is created in the process of social activity and our own personal and collective limits may be extended by what Roberto Unger calls collective improvisation. So utopia explores and opens up possibility. Anna Dinnerstein makes a similar point about hope. I'm not going to read that because you'll read it faster than me. (coughs) A different way of thinking about utopia is very broadly as the expression of the desire for a better way of living, a better way of being. This can take many forms, often fragmentary and fleeting, sometimes half-formed wishes. Utopia, in that sense, is ubiquitous. The whole of culture is infused with the desire that things be otherwise. And these wishes are not necessarily transformative. They may not even be critical, but simply compensatory. It isn't wrong to say that utopia involves idle daydreaming. It's merely insufficient. In The Principle of Hope, Ernst Bloch, who is the greatest theorist of utopia, um, argues that most people in the street look as if they're thinking about something else, and that something else is usually money, and that the wishes of the weak are often only those the powerful wish them to have, such as fancy bathrooms and cheap clothes. But utopia as the desire that things be otherwise is diffused throughout culture in art, music, poetry, literature, religion, and indeed politics. This is an analytical rather than descriptive definition of utopia by which, I mean, it doesn't involve categorizing cultural expressions (coughs) as utopian or not utopian, but accepting that many things have a utopian aspect, a utopian content, which we can recover and examine. And sometimes this is relatively easy, as in the work of Jeremy Deller. 
here portraying the return of William Morris as a colossus hurling Roman Abramovich's yacht into the Venetian lagoon. Or Alex Hartley, whose Nowhere Island was towed round the British coast together with a project to imagine a new nation as part of the cultural sideshow to the 2012 Olympics. In these, Utopia quite explicitly marches under the banner of visual art. But sometimes it's less clear. The second chapter of my book, Utopia as Method, concerns the utopian resonances of the colour blue, and that chapter also actually exists in visual form, while chapter three is about music and utopia. The third way of thinking about utopia is as a prefigurative practice. There are lots of attempts to institute alternative practices as well as to produce art objects. And the most obvious of these are intentional communities where groups of people set out to live differently. But actually, prefigurative practices aren't always like that. They include attempts at participatory budgeting or um, the institution of citizens' income trying out new ways of doing things collectively which might form part of the institutions of a better society or just make it easier to make out in this one. This is Unger's collective improvisation. Social practices that might embody utopian ideas of good relations with each other include music-making, Many people extol the relations between jazz musicians as a special form of pure, pure communication. Daniel Barenboim makes the same claim for orchestral work. And perhaps the same might be said of artistic collectives, such as Assemble, who won the Turner Prize last year for something many people said was urban regeneration and not art. But in all sorts of ways, people attempt to imagine and enact better ways of living and of being. And the American sociologist Eric Olin Wright calls these real utopias. But there are difficulties in treating prefigurative practices as genuinely prefigurative. Uh, after all, the very fact of their existence means that they are capable of coexisting with the dominant system as enclaves, temporary autonomous zones, heterotopias. So the question of how they might scale up and how they might interact with other such real utopias uh, into a, a kind of total social transformation is an open question which pushes us to think more holistically, more systemically, more sociologically. And that brings me to the fourth way of thinking about utopia as a kind of speculative sociology or the imagination of alternative social systems. This is more akin to Thomas More's imagination of a whole other world. And it's a speculative sociology in that sociology is precisely about understanding society as an integrated, if often conflictual, system. Utopia imagines the social system as a whole, but substantially otherwise. And there are lots and lots of examples of this after More including fantasy Eckler novels by writers like Edward Bellamy, William Morris, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and the feminist utopias of the late 20th century, such as Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time. Unlike Moore, all these novels have a double perspective, a double standpoint. They critique the present from the base of a putative better world, and they posit a better world to deal with contemporary problems. Now, if we view them as goals or plans, they are, of course, deeply problematic. They arise out of particular social contexts. They address the issues their authors perceive in those contexts. So Bellamy, Morris and Gilman are concerned with economic inequality and its causes, and Gilman is concerned also with gender inequality. All three, in fact, address questions of domestic labour but deal with it differently. All are conspicuously silent on questions of ethnicity and other aspects of identity that now concern us, such as sexual orientation. So their inclusionary intentions are limited 
by their perceptions of relevant exclusions. But I'll say again, these are not goals in the sense of plans or blueprints to be implemented, especially not Gilman's, which is a sort of single-sex utopia which reproduces by parthenogenesis. This was not a goal. It's a, a, a kind of literary trope in order to make certain political points. So they're explorations. But there's another reason why they can't be plans, because one of the key characteristics of modernity is the recognition of contingency. And we know very well, and they knew very well, that our knowledge, experience, and opinions are conditioned by our social position, and that imagination is limited by our position in history. Indeed, Karl Marx, far from being the author of a utopia or dystopia implemented by Stalin, was himself well aware of this. He argued that we cannot predict the needs, wants and desires of the future and should therefore refrain from drawing up recipes for the cookshops of the future, which was a sideswipe at the French utopian socialist Charles Fourier. Consequently, such images must be provisional. The answer to this, of course, is no, at least in terms of any utopia we may currently imagine. And this understanding was shared by Morris as well as Marx, but it's explicitly built in to the utopias of the last third of the 20th century, such as Marge Piercy's. These are, as Tom Moylan described them, critical utopias, in that they incorporate as many earlier utopias, including Moores, have done, a critical viewpoint interrogating the proposed good society. So utopias must be reflexive, recognising our own partial and limited view. They must be dialogic, engaging with alternative viewpoints, ideally in the context of collective practice. And even so, utopian speculation and practice is subject to Frederick Jameson's rubric of necessary failure, which I think William Morris actually put rather more clearly. Men fight and lose the battle, and the thing that they fought for comes about in spite of their defeat. And when it comes, turns out to be not what they meant. And others have to fight for what they meant under a different name. We should then understand utopia as a method rather than a goal. In the case of the more diffuse expressions in art, culture and music, this implies a kind of hermeneutic method of identifying and making explicit the utopian content. In the case of more holistic visions, we are talking about the imaginary reconstitution of society. Now, I want to stress, as the book does, that I'm not inventing a new method which I am seeking to foist on sociologists or anyone else. I do think sociology needs to be more explicitly future-oriented. It must be one of the few disciplines in which modelling alternative futures is relatively rare. And when sociologists write about inequalities, there's always a kind of underpinning notion that inequalities are bad or wrong, but they very rarely make explicit what would be the kind of society in which these inequalities do not actually exist. Um, They don't want to go there. So what I'm trying to do is to identify forms of thought and praxis that already actually exist in the world and to validate them as legitimate forms not just of thinking but of knowledge generation because um, the, the actually to, to imagine an alternative system is to have to look at the way in which Uh, your various proposals for solving the world's problems might interact with each other. So Utopia's method has three aspects. Firstly, and most obviously, an architectural aspect of the imagination and description of alternative social institutions. And the point here is that whenever we address the question of what needs to change, we have to think holistically Most of us, I hope all of us, are in favour of abolishing child poverty. Possibly the current government isn't particularly, but most of us are. 
For this to happen, to abolish the thing itself rather than the measurement of it, to abolish the thing itself rather than to merely alleviate it, we would, of course, need to abolish poverty among adults with children. And then you will find that you have to break the relationship between work in the sense of employment and entitlement to a share in the social product. Indeed, you have to reconsider what you mean by work and not limit it to work within the labour market. You have to look, as Miriam Glucksman said, at the total social organisation of labour. You have to reconsider what you mean by production, how you measure social value, how you value care, how you measure and value growth, and so on. And wherever you start, you will find that pretty much everything needs to change. Secondly, utopia as method has an archaeological aspect. Digging out the images of the good society that are implied in partial visions or political programs, especially those which claim to be pragmatic and free of ideology because they never are. We should do this as a matter of course. What is the vision of the good society? What is its plausibility? What are its internal contradictions at the root of the Brexit campaign? Similarly, what visions are implied in the campaigns to stay in? How are social Europe and economic Europe imagined by these different political groups uh, to relate to one another? And thirdly, there is an ontological aspect, uh, and this is another thing that sociologists often seek to dodge, in that all models of a good society have explicit or implicit models of what it means to be human, what constitutes human flourishing, and, as John Ruskin said, what kinds of work are good for us and make us happy, though I am somewhat ambivalent about identifying that with a smiley. Thomas More does all of these things. In critiquing More, we also employ all three. But it is, in the end, More's method of considering and exploring the shortcomings of his or our society and of potential alternatives that we need to preserve. So, in that respect, I don't think More's book, Utopia, matters all that much, but Utopia does. And understood as a method, utopia has four advantages. Firstly, it's holistic. Unlike political philosophy and political theory, which deal in such terms as justice and fairness, this holism is expressed at the level of concrete social institutions and processes. Secondly, it allows an element of ethical and institutional separation from the present. It allows us to think from the future to the present as well as the present to the future. And in that sense, it's both conceptually and ethically different from extrapolation or scenario building. As the French sociologist André Gortz put it, it is the function of utopias in the sense the term has assumed in the work of Ernst Bloch or Paul Ricoeur to provide us with the distance from the existing state of affairs, which allows us to judge what we are doing in the light of what we could or should do. Thirdly, rather than leading to totalitarianism, the process of making explicit alternative scenarios for the future is fundamental to any kind of democratic debate. Um, I point you here to a book by uh, Zygmunt Bauman, which has less citations than anything else he ever wrote, called Socialism, the Active Utopia, in which he talks about the future being reconfigured as a kind of uh, a contest between different utopian um, visions, different visions of the future. And fourthly, Utopia embeds that debate in prefigurative practice. This is not a debate among politicians, academics, and the commentariat, but it is and has to be a debate among the myriad movements improvising alternatives.
So in offering us a vision of society transformed, Utopia offers hope and possibility in place of fear. It is, as Michael D. Higgins, president of the Irish Republic, sociologist and poet, says in his poem on Utopias, a shout at the future that is there for the making. And I will say again, the main reason Utopia matters is that we cannot go on as we are. In the title of an old book by René Dumont about Africa, it is Utopia or Else. Now, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope one day you'll join us, if you haven't already. So we have about 20 minutes left for questions and comments, and we have, I think, a microphone wandering around. So who would like to kick off the uh, questions? Thank you. Uh, can you hear me? Uh, thank you very much for a very interesting presentation. My question is about uh, the uh, target audience of the book uh, Utopia, the Utopia as a Method. Uh, it's really very interesting reading from the academic point of view, but do you expect politicians to read this book, and do you really expect this book to be a guide how to change the real politics? Mm. I have to say that when I was writing Utopia as Method, um, I didn't have, as one is supposed to have these days, a target audience in mind. This book was written at the end of my academic career. I've now retired. It's probably the last academic book that I will ever write. And rather than being aimed at a target audience or a handbook for people, it has more the status of what I came to say. Um, so I, I tried, actually, I couldn't write it in my department. I had to be out of the department to write it because I wanted to be outside the sense of pressure of what you're supposed, to, what, what's allowable for a sociologist to do and say. And so in that sense, I, I wrote it because it was what I wanted to say and I hoped that it would find a resonance with some people. Thank you very much for today and for all your helpful work. I wonder if you'd agree that um, utopians, with a few exceptions such as William Morris letting them camp out freely in the woods, tend to ignore children and banish them. They, are, they put them into full-time care, either to take them out of the subversive family and turn them into model citizens, or else... Um, abolish the stifling family so that adults can enjoy free utopian enjoyments without the bother of children. But um, if we consign children to full-time care, and especially at present, with the great pressure on learning to compete, to earn, zero tolerance, immaculate obedience, so many lessons that if we are going to have democratic, critical, imaginative, free-thinking, adventurous, brave utopians... We couldn't design an education more designed to discourage that. Um, how would you envisage, for instance, if we did have a citizen's wage and half-time, half-week work for adults, we'd have half-time school at least for children. In fact, John Dewey um, and William Morris, both sorts, utopians wouldn't have schools because children are such good learners that institutions don't have. I wonder if you think um, that uh, children need to be introduced more into utopian thinking. Um, well, the first thing I'd say is that I don't agree with your hypothesis because I think what you're doing is identifying the utopian with a, a actually a particular subset of literary fiction. And, and, of course, if you look at something like Marge Piercy, it isn't at all the case that... that the, the children are banished. But I'm also trying to say that utopia is not to be identified with um, the, the literary genre. There are all kinds of um, utopian... Uh, th th there are all kinds of utopian visions. Now, it's true that there are some utopias, notably the Owenite ones, in which... Owen's idea was that children should be removed at 18 months old and, and brought up 
collectively because he thought the family was a, a terrible place for children. And Gilman also thought that um, the, the nuclear family household uh, lacked the kind of expertise that child-rearing needed, although in Gilman's case, the mothers are actually present in the children's house with, with the children. Um, it's quite interesting in the case of the, the actual Owenite communities uh, in, in America that there was a huge tussle, in fact, because the men wanted to put the children into daycare, and the women were very resistant to it. And, I mean, also with the kibbutzim, because initially the children were brought up collectively, but to some extent that was because the labour of the women was needed on on the land. Um, And that, as the kibbutzim became more affluent, also um, in practice kind of um, dwindled away, that there's less of it and the children started to sleep at home with their parents and so on. Um, And I think, of course... That's part of the point about needing to embed this in prefigurative practice because when it comes to the actual kind of activities of it, um, those kinds of very rigid notions tend to go by the board eventually. Um, but, but um, I mean, you'd have to see the whole alternative education movement as itself a form of utopianism. Um, so, so that that in it has in it a notion not just of what a good person should be, including the freedom and the creativity um, to choose what you want to do, but what a good society would be in that it wouldn't necessarily just require you to have a whole load of qualifications, but some actual skills and some social skills and some sense of personal integrity and so on. Um, so I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that utopianism implies putting children into full-time care. That, to me, is something which is predicated on the assumption that the only real work is the work that goes on in the market rather than the unpaid caring that goes on. Um, And I also think that it's true that our entire education system, including higher education is increasingly geared to a sort of neoliberal market model in which questions of um, creativity, knowledge, um, skills that aren't marketable increasingly go by the board. So, I I mean, in a way, that's why I think you have to think very holistically because to redesign the education system or to think about care, you have to think about how those fit into the wider society and what are the principles of that and how do the institutions mesh together into a system. Was it? I remember Plato's Republic also that he wanted to at least take the children partially away from the parents. And uh, I was just thinking that, like, you know, if you want to redesign society, isn't, uh, isn't at least to a certain extent, uh, you know, child rearing and, and like uh, bringing children up in a very specific way part of molding culture in, in, a, in, in any kind of big effort to redesign society? So that, you know, even if you're not going to take children away part fully that there, there, that most utopian many utopian ideas do involve separating children from their parents at least partially anyway but we do that anyway we send them to school we send them to nursery and and so it, again the whole question of socialization where it takes place how big a role parents should have at what point the state intervenes with its troubled families program to, um, to say you're not doing it right. Um, all those questions um, uh, arise. But I, I don't think that... Um, I, I mean, the danger about generalising about utopias is that people are then usually thinking about a very narrow band of um, really kind of political philosophy or, uh, or novels... And they're not thinking about the utopian images, the the notions of the good society that are embedded in all our political political programs. Um, In the 1980s, I wrote a piece on new right utopias, which is looking at the neoliberals and neoconservatives. These are as utopian 
as, you know, Hayek is as utopian as Morris. Um, how active do you see the role of literature in um, the development of utopia as method in maybe the contemporary world? You mentioned, um, obviously, throughout your talk um, of utopia, you were mentioning lots of literary figures from the past. Um, so how, how active and responsible do you see um, literature as continuing to shape utopia as method? Um... <laughs> That's a really difficult question because it, it raises all sorts of issues about cultural reproduction and what meaning texts have um, in kind of both when they're actually produced but also kind of later on. And um, I, I have always opposed the identification of utopianism with the literary utopia. I think utopian studies is far too dominated by consideration of texts and insufficiently concerned with um, politics, political contestation, and social movements. Having said that, if you look at... Um, I mean, uh, if you look at the, the kinds of texts I'm talking about... Morris's News from Nowhere was written at the time for the socialist movement. It was serialised in the socialist journal Commonweal. So it was an image written for socialists. Um, Bellamy's utopia, looking backward, created an entire political movement in the States. Marge Piercy was writing for and out of the feminist movement. So these are things that are written by people who are engaged politically. And whether those texts speak to people who are engaged politically now or not, I think is very variable. Um, News from Nowhere got a whole new lease of life because of the Green Movement. But I think that more importantly is not how much people read and draw from the old utopian texts, in a way that's why I'm saying more in a way is not all that important. It's the extent to which they're actively engaged in this kind of imagination themselves and possibly writing their own or, or sort of sketching their own. Um, Occupy was very reluctant to do it. Uh, a couple more questions. Uh, yeah. That's that. Thank you very much. That's been stimulating. I wonder if you might have anything to say about the way in which the looking up of fear serves to discourage thinking about the alternatives. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and of course, that's part of. The, the whole kind of totalitarian argument against utopia, which is that um, there isn't an alternative, and all these people who are, um, who, who are suggesting that there might be are actually totalitarians and dangerous. And, I mean, I don't know if any of you have been to see Trumbo. Of course, the whole of McCarthyism was predicated on that. And, and of course, in a... In a a kind of much lesser way, the arguments that are being made now about um, about Brexit, oh, don't go there, it's terribly dangerous. I mean, personally, I'm in favour of staying in the, in the EU, but I think the argument that, oh, it might be risky, it might be risky to c come out of it, is a terrible argument. Um, it's the absence of... Um, it, it's the, the absence of any kind of positive vision of what it is that we're trying to build. And actually, that was one of the key reasons why Labour lost the election, was the inability to project any vision of an alternative kind of society. And of course, there's an enormous amount of effort put into terrifying people into thinking this is not possible. Thank you very much for your talk. Uh, sort of related to probably a question a few questions ago about the target audience and also linked to the last question, I suppose. Um, I was just thinking about uh, the sort of, again, 
who this is the idea of Utopia's method, the relationship, who that's sort of aimed at really, is that aimed at an establishment kind of thing, or you're talking about social movements. I'm thinking about like um, the thing about, there was a while ago, the idea of changing the GDP measure kind of got a little bit of political currency. Um, so there's some sort of idea that, you know, some of these ideas can eventually reach the, the political establishment and realpolitik and all that sort of thing. But I was just wondering perhaps how you see, how you see it in relation to that. Mm. Um, two things, I suppose. Um, one generally and one in particular to, to the GDP. Um, I think that... Let's go the other way around, the G, go from the GDP thing. Raymond Williams makes the point that um, alternatives are not always oppositional. And indeed, there's a, a kind of ongoing process in which alternatives spring up and are co-opted and kind of um, have, have their, their kind of bite removed from them. So the oppositional becomes merely alternative. It becomes incorporated. And so you have to kind of constantly rethink the oppositional. But in relation to GDP, I think that that, I mean, that's really important because the Stiglitz and Sen report, which suggested um, uh, extending notions of uh, growth and well-being, and that, of course, is why we now have uh, really quite banal measures of happiness um, in our official statistics. Um, it, it's actually double-edged because it doesn't remove the measure of uh, the, the conventional economic growth. It adds to them, and it sort of incorporates some other things, which it, like health and welfare, which it's important to measure. But it doesn't really go to the nub of why GDP and growth are such kind of ridiculous measures. The people who've done the best work on this, so the New Economics Foundation, um, who are, are, are in a way constantly suggesting that we should use different measures and producing different measures, and, and they started out, this started out with the um, index of... Uh, I think it's the Index of Social and Economic Welfare. I've forgotten what it was called. But, I mean, it, it, by which um, it was demonstrated that actually by 2000 we weren't really any better off than we were in 1950, apart from the fact that we drove cars about a lot. Um, you know, that, 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 that actually if you use different measures, the notion of how well off we are uh, begins to look completely different and the notion of what we need to do as well as what we need to measure, changes quite dramatically. But when these things get taken up by, um, by governments within an essentially neoliberal system, of course they become emasculated. Um, they, uh, and so you get an alternative which isn't really an alternative. OK, I think it's nearly... So I think we should uh, call, call a halt. I do want to say that... I think Moose is signing books outside. Um, if, if anybody wants me to. but <laughs> You'll be staying around to, to sign copies. And can I thank you very much for a very stimulating talk and, and for your questions too. It's been a very interesting discussion. Thanks, everybody.